Welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, season five, episode nine. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 to connect readers and writers during the COVID pandemic and has since developed into an online hotspot for book news and interviews with best-selling authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. If you're one of the 40 million people who have read one of Mitch Albom's books, then you already know he has a way with words and ideas and people and sports and so much more. His 2002 blockbuster, Tuesdays with Maury, is the best-selling memoir of all time. And his novel, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, caused a similar sensation. But Mitch has also written sports books like Bo and Fab Five, novels like The Timekeeper, and even plays, films, and music. His latest, called The Stranger in the Lifeboat, is about one lifeboat, ten survivors, and a castaway who claims to be God. Mitch visited the thoughtful bro to talk with fellow writer Mark Cecil about faith, the simple joy of happy endings, and the story behind the best and most difficult thing he's ever written. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Mark and his accomplished and generous guest, Mitch Album. Hey everybody, welcome to the Thoughtful Bro uh, live streaming on a Mighty Blaze on our Facebook and YouTube channels. As always, at Tuesday um, at two o'clock, we have a fabulous interview today with the man who wrote this book and also this book um, and many other books besides. Um, It is going to be a fascinating conversation. We're going to go deep on this new book called A Stranger in the Lifeboat. And um, it's such an honor to have Mitch Album on the show today. Um, he's one of my real writing heroes. And um, I just think his body of work is sort of unlike any other uh, in American literature. So what a treat today. Um, a few words before we get started. Um, the Thoughtful Bro, as I said, is here every Tuesday at two to talk about what makes great books tick and make what makes great authors tick. Um, but we broadcast on A Mighty Blaze. Uh, a Mighty Blaze was founded during COVID to help writers reach readers when we can't do real life uh, book tours. Uh, We're not asking for money at A Mighty Blaze. If you want to support us, just give us a like on social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, You can also subscribe to our newsletter uh, and get a schedule of author interviews that we do every Sunday. Um, We do six or seven new author interviews every week with people who are launching their books on their pub day. We're so honored actually to have Mitch here on his very pub day. Um, We also have a Mighty Blaze podcast in its third season. You can find that wherever podcasts are downloaded. Um, If you are in fact in the mood to spend some money, please spend it on fabulous books like this. The Stranger in the Lifeboat by Mitch Album, books that kind of probe what we're doing on this earth, the meaning of life, uh, and what's on the other side of death. Um, these are, it's a fascinating, compelling, timeless book. Um, so please go ahead and buy one copy or 10. And um, now on to our guest. Mitch Album is the internationally renowned and best-selling author, journalist, screenwriter, playwright, radio and television broadcaster, and musician. His books have collectively sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. He's been published in 49 territories 
territories and 47 languages around the world. His books have also been made into Emmy award-winning and critically acclaimed television movies. Among his many journalistic and humanitarian accolades, Album was named Best Sports Columnist in the Nation, a record 13 times by the Associated Press Sports Editors, and he won Best Feature Writing Honors for the same organization seven times. He has founded nine charities in the metropolitan Detroit area. He operates an orphanage in Haiti where he spends time every month. Um, as for his books, Time Magazine called Mitch Album the Babe Ruth of popular literature, which I thought was great. Um, his 1997 memoir, Tuesdays with Maury, stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for four years. Uh, it became the best-selling memoir of all time. Um, following Tuesdays with Maury, he wrote The Five People You Meet in Heaven, which was the best-selling U.S. hardcover debut of any adult novel ever. Um, his latest book, called The Stranger in the Lifeboat, is about an odyssey on the open seas of 10 castaways who are visited by a strange man who crawls into their lifeboat and claims to be God himself. Um, the story probes all of what Mitch Album is known for what our purpose is on earth, what solace we can have in the face of death, um, and all the things that make a classic Mitch album bestseller. So happy to have you here, Mitch. Welcome to The Thoughtful Bro. Thanks, Mark. I'm kind of embarrassed by that long introduction, uh, but thank you. Appreciate you having me on. I actually edited it on the fly. It was longer than that. Um, you could have so edited it a little more, actually. You could have <laughs> about hi, Mitch. That would have been good. I mean, you're a humble Thank guy, God. but you've, you've led an absolutely incredible life. And I even there was so much stuff I found out about you researching this interview that I, even I didn't know. Um, but anyway, I want to talk about the book. I'm very tempted to talk to you about things like what's going on with Kansas City Chiefs or are the Lakers too old and things like this that you and I would be interesting to you and me. But this is more of a literary show. So I do want to talk about the book. Um, you know, I think the setup, I'm going to talk about the setup a little bit more later, but it's a kind of classic setup. You know, you have, um, there's this, you know, all the highfalutin people in the world, this kind of Davos on the sea conference of people who are on a big yacht. And then there's a mysterious accident. And, um, basically everybody, you know, former presidents, CEOs, people like that, they all die except for a few people who escape in a life raft. Um, so that's sort of the setup and just, just tell us what happens next. They're in the life raft, about half of 10 people total. Half of them are the rich guests, including the guy who owned the, the yacht that exploded. And half of them are deckhands and cooks and hairstylists and the like. And after three days, nobody's coming looking for them. There's no helicopters. There's no airplanes. There's no anything. They're running low on food and water. There's sharks in the water. And they're desperate. And they're all in their own way, crying out for help. And suddenly they see this body floating in the water, which they presume is somebody again from the boat. And they pull the body into the uh, into the life raft. It's a nondescript, average looking young guy, nothing special about him. And they pepper him with questions, no answer, no response. And finally, one of the guests says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that's that's the moment where the trailer ends and the movie begins, so to speak. Right. And uh, from that point, you know, they do what people would do in a case like that. Uh, no, you're not. You know, or if you're the Lord, what are you doing here? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? Uh, and they say, well, wait a minute. So you're going to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everyone in this boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. So he throws down this challenge. And of course, a number of them are not really people who would believe even under the best of circumstances, let alone 
a guy who doesn't look like you think God would look like. And he he eats, he gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he falls asleep a lot. He hardly acts regal or divine in any way. He doesn't look like Gandalf or, you know, he's and so they let their eyes and their and their perceptions kind of do the thinking for them and they doubt him and some dismiss him as just a joke. But strange things keep happening as the days go by and as they get more and more desperate, you see some of their attitudes change, some of them don't, some get angry at him. It's like, like, stop playing around with us. If you're God, save us already. And, uh, you know, it was a a parable of sorts of uh, really marked to deal with help, you know, like the, the theme of when we ask for help in our lives, which of course over the last few years, a lot of people have been doing in one way or another. You ask for it from other people, you ask for it from your community, you ask for it from the universe, you ask for it from God, depending on you know how you're oriented. And we all kind of expect the help to come when we ask for it, as if we're making an order in a restaurant. Like, I'll have the steak. And then if the steak doesn't get here in 20 minutes, they're like, what's taking so long? Well, my uh, observation is that help from the universe or from God or whatever you believe, uh, it comes. It always comes. But it doesn't come when you expect it and doesn't always come in the form that you expect. But when you look back on your life 10 years later and you look at that event that you were asking for help from, and you remember that you didn't get it the way you wanted it, but then you see, well, but you know what? If that hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened. And if this wouldn't have happened, then this wouldn't have happened. And I guess in a certain way, that was the best thing that could have happened. And voila, your prayers were actually answered, but it took you 10 years to realize it. And uh, I think that that's something that happens to a lot of people in life. And so that became the underpinning of the book. Right. You know, there's so much to dig into. I want to talk about how you came up with the character of the Lord and the way you presented him and like some of the things that happened on the boat for sure. But I want to start actually with something which is a departure, it seems, for you with this work, which is the thriller elements of the book. And I have to say, I was like quite taken by the thriller elements of the book. And I, I was hoodwinked several times. And I'm like, I'm so tempted. I'm so excited about the thriller elements of the book that I, I want to share them, but I'm not going to do it for the sake of not disclosing any spoilers, but suffice it to say, you know, I was misdirected at least three solid times when I was sort of shouting at the book, like, what? <laughs> um, and so I guess I wanted to ask you, I mean, I don't feel like it's a question you get asked because rightfully so, people ask you so much about, you know, the spiritual aspects of your book, which are, which you're so known for, but, but this is something different. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, Thank you for saying that. And I think it probably is the biggest thriller, if you can associate the word thriller with me, uh, <laughs> that I write. But, you know, I'm no different than anybody else. I, I like entertaining stories. Uh, and, you know, Tuesdays with Maury, which, you know, is the first thing and probably the thing I'm best known for. Obviously, there's not a lot of action in there. You know, it's two people sitting, you know, as the one man is dying and he's teaching what life was about. Uh, when I wrote The Five People We Meet in Heaven, which was my first novel, um, I set out to say, okay, well, I want to teach, I want to talk about some certain lessons and things like that, but, you know, I can't do Tuesdays with Maury again. I can't have two people sitting around. I've got to create a story. And in that case, I created a pretty fantastical story about when you die, what happens is you meet five people from your life, but some of whom could have been strangers and only you only spent 30 seconds with them on earth, but you changed their life forever and they changed yours. And 
one was a soldier and one was uh, you know a woman from the early 1900s and and so i started to create all these different scenes and and that kind of birthed me in the idea of you know you can make a story as exciting as you want and still have it be something uplifting or hopeful at the end uh, you don't have to get lost in plot um, plot can serve you and so in this case i wanted something to be desperate because I wanted the, the question of help to be, there couldn't be, you know, they, these people weren't asking for help like, hey, I'd like to move to a slightly larger house if I could pay the rent, you know, help me universe get that. <laughs> Stakes aren't very high, right? But when suddenly there's sharks around you or there's a, you know, tidal waves and the boat is being splashed back and forth and you're hanging on for dear life or it tips over, uh, th these are all things that people say, oh my God, how would I ever, to see the word I just used. Oh my God, how would I survive in that? Mm -hmm. I wanted to create that kind of desperation so that the question of, are you going to accept this help now? You know, you're about to starve to death. You're about to be eaten by a shark. You're about to be, you know, uh, tossed into the ocean and left to drown. Are you gonna believe somebody is there to help you or not? So the more desperate and more thriller it became, the more the aspect of book that was the underpinning of it became in focus, if you know what I mean. And that's why yeah. I did it. Totally. And, you know, you have multiple kind of point of view narrators. You have an unreliable narrator. Oh, it's it, it, it's great stuff. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is I know that you have said when people have asked you about how you conceive of a work, what how do novel ideas come to you? You have said that you often have a, a message or an idea that you want to get across. Um, and yeah. I just wonder, like, what was the first thing that came to you about this book? Because one thing I just want to observe is like, how timeless and how classic this idea of people kind of stranded in a boat, stranded on an island, a group of strangers stranded together, how powerful and kind of eternal a metaphor that is. And I, I just wonder, is that sort of the image that came to you first or that hooked you on this as a book idea? Well, you're right in saying that, and I guess I've, I've said it enough times in stories and interviews, you've, I guess you've read it or heard it, that I, unlike a lot of authors who say, well, I got this great idea about a guy who's going to blow up a shopping mall and and he's involved with a cartel and the cartel is actually the leader of the cartel is married to uh, the president of the United States, you know, which is great. I mean, actually, that's not a bad book. I should write that down, <laughs> but it wouldn't be one that I would write. Uh, but uh, so I don't think like that. I tend to think like, OK, um, I want to write a book about, you know, uh, how desperate we feel when, after we lose somebody and we, if we just could have one more day back with them. That's a universal feeling. And from that, I created For One More Day, which ended up being a story about a guy who decides to commit suicide and he goes back to his hometown to do it. And uh, he walks into his old house, which has been boarded up and everything. And his mother is in the kitchen making him breakfast, even though she's been dead for 20 or 30 years. And you know, but I didn't think of that first. I thought about I wanted to do and he gets to spend one more day with her. But I thought about I want to do that universal feeling of when somebody's gone and you just want one more day with the five people you meet in heaven. The, the idea was I want to write about people who think they don't matter in life because I believe everybody matters in life. Everybody touches somebody. Everybody has some effect on somebody. But there's so many people you meet who go, oh, my life is so insignificant and they die unhappily because of that. So then I created the whole world about the five people you meet in heaven. So for the stranger in the lifeboat, you know, I wanted I wanted to write about help and healing. Uh, I had gone through something uh, pretty bad, uh, uh, at least for us. 
you know, we uh, we adopted a little girl from uh, Haiti. I have an orphanage that I operate in Haiti. I think you mentioned in the introduction, and I'm there every month, uh, and I've been there for 12 years. And and amongst the 53 kids that we had was a little girl named Chica who, at five years old, developed a brain tumor, and we brought her to America, thinking that she'll get operated on, we'll take her back, and and she never went home. She became our daughter, and and for two years we were a family. And you know, it was my wife, my me and our little girl, and we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for her. In the end, she died from this thing, which they told us would take her in four months. She lived two years. So she was a miracle in and of itself. But I wrote a book called Finding Chica, which was dedicated to her. And I, I think um, personally, it's the best book I've ever written. And um, I know it was the most painful book I ever wrote. Uh, and I wrote that book out of a lot of pain even though I think it's, a, it's a, you know, got a positive message in the end about making a family. But this book was the one that followed that. And enough years have passed, it's been four years plus now, that I have a bit of a different take on the anger that I had when she died and how I railed at the universe and railed at whatever God might be and said, you, you can't be real if and kind and benevolent if you can't be real and kind and benevolent to a seven-year-old girl. You know, mm. it'd be one thing with me, but she was born three days before the earthquake and survived the earthquake of 2010. Then her mother died two years later, giving birth to a baby brother because there was no doctor present. She didn't have to die, but she did. And she became an orphan. And then you give her a brain tumor at age five and she dies from it at age seven. Why? You know, what did she do wrong? So a lot of that anger now that four years have passed. I'm able to look at it and say, well, the question isn't so much, why did you take her? Maybe the question is, why did you give her to us? Mm. You know, what did we do to deserve that amazing, amazing, loving two years with her as, as our little girl? And uh, there's a character in the book, the inspector uh, who finds the life raft uh, a year later. So that, as you said, the story's told in three different time periods and a year after the explosion he finds the raft but it's empty and there's nothing in it there's no people there's no anything but he finds a notebook inside of it and he starts he takes the notebook and keeps it for himself even though all the media start descending on the island and they all oh we found the life raft that means there must be survivors but he's got this notebook and he's reading the notebook of the account of the 10 people and this god character and he's a broken guy himself because he lost his daughter just like I did. And, the, you know, if you know anything about me, then, you know, he's sort of a surrogate for me. And he's angry and bitter and and has no belief in anything. And slowly through reading this notebook and the account of this God character on a life raft, he starts to come to soften up and start to look at his own life a little differently. And that's that's sort of what I did. And that's why I chose this book now and and yeah. how I you know sort of came to it. Yeah, Mitch, I do feel that when I read your work that um, I can feel you working through the issues that you've had in your own life. And it, it feels like these books spring from a place of, you know, when you had doubt and difficulty with your own relationship with God, and then it is resolving into this work. That's why I found the character of God as he's presented um, in this life raft so interesting. I mean, I think it um, stories sort of like of a tradition of kind of beguiling God figures. I mean, the God of Abraham in the Old Testament of Job, um, you know, even, you know, the way Jesus appeared in the Gospels, it's like the answers you get are sort of 
They're sly, they're witty, they're sort of incomplete, they're mysterious, cryptic, and yeah. um, you sort of get some of what you want, but not all of it. I just wanted to ask you about sort of creating God as a character and kind of why you made him kind of talk the way he did and so on. Yeah, well, you really nailed it in terms of, I mean, even some of your source material, you know, the God of the Old Testament can be very uh, violent and uh, very short-tempered. Uh, and the Jesus, not everything he said was linear, you right. know, and, uh, and, and many other uh, godlike figures if you, if you study religion. Uh, and you're right, it's always kind of a little sly, a little cryptic. But then I thought, well, it should be that way because if, if God talks just like we do, it makes perfect sense, just like, then where's the separation between us and God? So, and I joke around about this. I have to say, you know, like when you write a book, where you create, and, and by the way, those of you who are watching or listening along, I'm not saying, and Mark's not saying that this guy is God. We just say he says he's God. You have to read the book and then you'll figure out whether, because there's a lot of other things happen that we can't tell you, but don't go assume, well, he's God's God, so therefore it is. So that the mystery element had to be there, but you always worry a little bit when you're like writing a book and you're putting words in God's mouth you know, you like, you know, okay, I'm going to, says, all right, right? They're like, nothing, lightning bolt's not going to come down and blow up my computer, right? Uh, and there are some moments where, like, for example, uh, the owner of the boat is this very haughty, multi-billionaire hedge fund guy who just can't accept the fact that people aren't coming to save him because he's so rich. At one point, when they're all sitting around desperate and hungry, and, and they're just staring at each other, he goes, you know how much money I made last year? <laughs> like everybody, oh, well, yeah. that line. I mean, that's what he wants to talk about. You know, eight billion dollars. I did eight billion last year, and they're all like, "Who gives a crap?" And and he says, "Well, that's what's going to save me. You know, they're going to come for me." And so he gets when God is sort of talking to some of the other passengers. Uh, he says, "All right, enough with this stuff. If you're really God, tell me what happened to my yacht." And God says to him, "Well, why are you so upset about that?" He says, "Because they destroyed my damn boat." And, and God says, well, you're in another one. And he says, yeah, but, but uh, you know, it's not mine. It's not, and, and God says, that's right. This one is floating. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like, you know, and, and one of the passengers laughs. And he goes, stop laughing. It's not funny. Uh, but, you know, those kind of little exchanges, you think like, well, God's got to be smarter than all of us. Everything we say is just kind of almost like child talk to him. And every now and then he might just let a little one out like, you know, yeah, that's right. This boat is actually afloat, unlike yours. Uh, and so there are moments like that where he's funny, but there are moments where he gets hungry, where he, he you know, where he gets a little angry, where he refuses to do certain things. There's a moment where they're desperate for water and they're begging him for water and he just goes to sleep. And, you know, and, and I mean, I did that deliberately because that's how we are when we ask for help from the universe or from God or from the divine. It's like, please, please, please. It rarely like, you know, fills up your hands. It, like I said earlier, it takes time. And so he went to sleep. We can perceive that like God's sleeping and not hearing us. Yet while he's sleeping, it starts to rain. And, you know, did this come from him or did he just fall asleep during a rainstorm? And they, they, they go outside with their cups and they start filling up their, their anything they can to try to get fresh water to drink. And then all of a sudden it stops and they get angry that it stops. And they say to him, 
who is he woken up now, keep it going. And he says, oh, so you think I did that? You know, like when, when, it, when, when you need God to do something for you, then you blame him or you, you know, and, and, and when you don't, you think it's just your own good fortune. You know, you think it's your doing. And so at that point they say, well, whatever it is, just keep it going. He goes, no. And you don't know if he's saying no because he's mad or no because he's stubborn or no because he knows something else about it. And I think that's the way we kind of are with God. You know, uh, we sometimes don't like the answers that we get. Yeah. And what's really moving about your relationship with with God, as, or at least the way you, it comes through in your work, is just sort of like this never ending engagement with this mystery and the kind of what, where is God in my life and where is God not? And just kind of a persistent questioning and sort of never giving up with this questioning and exploration, which seems to me like kind of the real bedrock of, of great faith when you see it in people. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, this is sort of a writer nerdy question, um, but you know, just give me a minute to set this question up because I think it'll be worth it. So J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, he's sort of the father of, um, uh, Fan, the fantasy genre and literature. He wrote this essay called On Fairy Stories in 1947. And the, the point that he made with this essay, which is so influential in magical realism and, and, and fantasy literature is, grownups need fairy tales too. Not only that, but grownups need fairy tales with happy endings. He had this term for it called a you catastrophe, like a good catastrophe. And he thought the story of Jesus in history is sort of the you catastrophe, happy ending of history. Um, but, you know, lots of these other um, fables in the Old Testament and myths um, do have these kinds of magical happy endings. And, you know, I was thinking about that and that essay has always been persuasive for me. I love fairy tales and myths and and your work is all is in this realm. And And I think like when I look at the incredible success I and mean, success you've had unlike kind of almost any other author. And I put that together with the kinds of stories that you tell with these like fables that do have these um, uplifting endings. I'm just wondering, I guess the question to you then is, why do you think those kinds of stories are so successful? Why do you like telling those kinds of stories? Because I think hope is a highly undervalued uh, ingredient in our lives. I think particularly in America, um, we have somehow, and I, I can't, you know, take a smarter person than me to follow, follow why this has become the case, but we've become more attracted to stories of, of, uh, of, of bad people, broken people, irredeemable people. Uh, we're perfectly fine with stories that end where everybody's dead and, and there's, there's, no, there's no moral to it. Uh, and we're perfectly fine with succession, you know, which which I watch, by the way. But there's you can't root for anybody in that TV series. They're all creeps, you know, uh, and and uh, or billions or any of these shows. And these, I, I like these shows, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I, I watch them. And but there's a lot of that. And uh, the Sopranos and 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 we like the anti-hero and we like the negative result and we like angst. And certainly when it comes to reviews and you know what we consider high art. Um, happy endings just just aren't part of, of of what happens for the most part. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, you know, uh, it's almost considered not real, not serious, not uh, literary or cinematic or whatever. If it if it wraps up in some kind of hopeful way, um, I for whatever reason just choose to tell stories of hope. I guess because I've had enough tragedy in my life. I've lost a lot of people, 
that I care about and, and seen a lot of really bad things. I operate in Haiti every single month where you take your life in your own hands just to go from the airport to the orphanage. Um, I don't need, and I live in Detroit. I don't need any more serious, you know, I don't need any more bad. I, when I escape, I like to escape to things that are um, ultimately positive. Uh, and I don't count that as bad. You know, I don't, I don't look at that as unserious. I, I think in the end, we're all searching for hope. And, and I know because I've seen the end with a lot of people, you know, I guess Tuesdays with Maury, that experience, forget the book, the experience of sitting and watching a man die week after week and seeing what was important to him and what wasn't um, never left me. And he's not the first person I've watched die. And, and, and I see a universality to it. And at the end, they're not talking about angst. They're not talking about irony and they're not talking about, you know, um, bitterness or, 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 or how bad things were. They're, they're, they're trying to hold people's hands and tell one another that they love them and uh, that they're going to miss them and how much they appreciate them. And usually with an apology, like I should have been more, I should have spent more time with you. I should have been kinder. I should have been nice. And if that's what awaits us at the end, then I believe that it's inside of us to await us each day, you know? And, and so I want to write with that kind of feeling. I want to write with something that if it was the last book that you read the day before you died, you would feel that it had given you something good to, to leave on. And you say, yeah, that's, that's what life is. Uh, and I search for that and it may be more serious than people give me credit for, you know, uh, I'm not avoiding seriousness. I'm actually, taking it on full steam. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Do you want to hear how successful authors got their start? The Queries, Quams, and Quirks podcast asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. Author Sarah Nicholas interviews authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Sounds like something that would be up our alley. Listen on your favorite podcast app or go to sarahnicholas.com for more info. Yeah, I mean, and so I just want to ask one follow-up question there. I'm just kind of curious why that is. I mean, certainly all writers out there want to be as widely read as you are. All people want an audience. And yet the trend very much certainly is in what one might call literary fiction or more highbrow artistic fiction towards these darker um, themes. And yet here you are um, succeeding and with an audience of millions. And uh, it just makes me think, wouldn't, wouldn't everybody try to do that if they could, which leads me to conclude there must be something special about you. Do you feel like there's something kind of unique or special about your own character, which kind of allows you to write books like this or what is it? I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's an interesting question. And, uh, I don't think I'm unique in any way. I, I think, I think what I just said, I'm guessing that there were a lot of people who nodded their head and said, yeah, yeah, that's right. So I don't know myself why people run away from it. I guess I've not ever been afraid of critical, I don't live for critical praise. You know, I came out of the newspaper world. Um, so I know what newspaper and literary critics, they were friends of mine. And, you know, and I, I don't, 
if, if, if I, you know, I've had people say, well, your work is too sentimental. And I go, well, what's the matter with that? You know, like uh, everybody I know uh, takes out their wallet. They're not showing you their irony card. They're taking out pictures of their kids. And so these are my, or these are my grandkids. Look, aren't they cute? Or my grandkids. Or when a song comes on the radio and uh, I go, oh, that was the first slow dance I danced to in high school. You know, oh, I love this song. Whatever. That's sentimental. The, 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 the most beautiful moments in life are sentimental and full of sentiment. Um, but some people don't want to be labeled that. Like they, they, they hmm. think that, that uh, well, there goes my career, uh, you know. Or, and I, I guess I've never really concerned myself with that. I, you know, I'm, I'm rewarded by the people who read me and, and the kind of response that I get from people who read me. It isn't like, when's your next book? Uh, you know, I like that character. When's the, when's the next one? When's the next adventure? I can't wait. It's they're deep, meaningful responses. They're like, here's how that book changed my life. I was having a problem with my brother and I wasn't talking to him. And then after I read this line or, or I was struggling with my own faith in the universe or, you know, I lost someone and I just couldn't get over it. These are really meaningful things to me. And uh, when you realize you can have that kind of effect on readers, I think you're less worried about what effect you're going to have on your reputation, if if, yeah. if you get what I mean. And uh, maybe maybe people are more concerned about that. But there's plenty of room, plenty of room in the uh, in the writing universe for hopeful stories. And I you know, let's not pretend I'm the only person who does. There are plenty of authors who do it, and there are plenty of movies, you know, uh, that that do it otherwise. I just saw that movie Coda, uh, which I, I mean, I was bawling my eyes out at the end of it, and I thought, what a beautiful piece of work and then i found out like they've been trying to make that for 10 years you know and they couldn't couldn't get it done i said that typical you know like uh if 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 the woman had been stabbed and was a serial killer probably would have gotten made in six months you know but but sometimes <laughs> you have to fight to tell a, an uplifting story well i, I want to talk about tuesdays with maury for a moment before we get to audience questions there's a bunch of audience questions and we'll get to them in about five minutes um but first, I just want to say, just to wrap up that last topic, you know, I've listened to you, um, you know, in front of audiences, and I've seen reader feedback on your work online. And the word that keeps coming up is comfort. Um, I think people feel when they read your work, they feel comforted. And I think it's in short supply. Um, and what a great thing to, to, to offer people. But, um, you know, one dovetailing on that last comment you made about if there was a murderer or whatever it would have been made in six months like um one of my favorite stories about tuesdays with maury there's so many remarkable things about that book the best-selling memoir of all time i dove into it again i've read that book so many times but i dove into it again like this morning and then like the time just flew i like, couldn't i like lost track of time trying to prep for this interview because i got sucked in again there's something so magnetic and magical about those that book um but i think I, one of the stories i love about it is the way no one would publish it and the reason why you kept going could you just tell that story about the journey to publication and why you didn't give up i just i just love it sure uh well it wasn't like i went to visit my old professor to write a book i went because i felt guilty that he and i had been so close to one another back in college and then now i found out he was dying from lou gehrig's disease and and uh you know i i didn't even I hadn't even contacted him in 16 years because I was so ambitious. I was trying to make money and succeed in sports and everything. So I started going to visit him and I got sucked in, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I really started to turn around on those Tuesdays because I felt like I was a student again. You know, 
here I was, it was right at the right time in my life. I was 37. So I had been out long enough that I had become an adult, but I was still young enough to remember how I felt in college. And every time I sat next to Maury, I was like a kid again in one of those little desks with the thing, you know, the desk in front of you. And uh, I liked myself better when I was with him. And at one point he said, I'm going to die twice. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, I'm going to die when I die. And then I'm going to die because of the debt that I have. Uh, I can't pay my bills. I've been dying for two, three years like this. We don't have the money to pay for all the therapists and everything. So my family are going to have to sell the house after I die. And, and I'm going to die twice knowing that I'm ruining them. So that's when I got the idea to write a book. And uh, I didn't tell him, but uh, I went around to the publishers in New York. And I had had two very successful sports books up to that point. That was my whole you know, literary career. But they were bestsellers. And uh, I couldn't get anybody interested in Tuesdays with Maury. They just said, it's boring. Write another sports book. You're a sports writer. What do you know about that? One guy actually said, you don't know what a memoir is. Come back in 20 years. Maybe you'll understand what a memoir is. He literally wow. said that to me. And I would have given up on it, honestly, Mark. I mean, uh, you know, you get that much rejection, especially a comment like that. And you figure, all right, I'm barking up the wrong tree. Let's drop this idea and try another one in six months. But because it was for him, I couldn't do that because I wanted to help him pay his medical bills. So finally, I found a publisher um, a few weeks before he died. And um, we were able to, I just wanted enough money to pay his bills. And we were able to get that. And, and they gave it to us up front. And I was able to go to Maury and say, listen, I got a publisher uh, for this these conversations we've been having. He wanted me to do a thesis. And I, and I couldn't break his heart by telling him I'm not enrolled in college anywhere. I really don't know where I would do a thesis. Uh, but I said, hey, we're going to do a book. And I, I have a publisher. He said, oh, really? Who? I said, Doubleday. He said, ooh, I heard of them. I said, well, not only that, but they're going to give us some money. And, uh, you know, I want you to take all the money and pay your medical bills. And so you don't have to die twice. And I always say that for me, that was kind of the end of Tuesdays with Maury for me, because I had finally like learned the lesson of doing something for somebody else, not asking something in return or for my career or anything like that. And he had had that effect on me. But of course, when he, you know, when he died a few weeks later and he never got to read a page of Tuesdays with Maury. And so that's what's so ironic about it is that people are still reading that book all over the world. They're teaching it in classrooms in, in Japan and Sweden and Australia and in more places I could possibly count. And he's not even here to teach it. And so everybody has that thing inside them. And I guess that's something that I put into every one of my books that we all have the ability to change the world by changing one person, by touching one other person. And you never know where the ripples of your stone in the pond are going to go. Maury didn't know. Uh, I mean, if he came back to earth for a couple of minutes and he'd say, I'm Maury, I'd like, oh, like Tuesdays with Maury? Uh, yeah. How do you know about that? You know, I mean, literally that's how well known it is. So it was a surprise to me. It wasn't supposed to be a big book. They only printed 20,000 copies of it. I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car for the rest of my life and, you know, give them out to on holidays. And uh, it took off. You know, people embraced it. And for whatever, I guess the reasons that you were kind enough to to just offer. And uh, I'm very happy that people embraced it. But really, it was just written out as, as a labor of love. And that taught me very early in my literary life that do things for the right reasons. Don't aim your books to be, you know, some kind of, okay, where, where can I find the bestseller list area that's open? Let me go for that. Uh, it's not going to work, you know. Um, 
believe me, earlier in my career, before I went to see Maury, I'm sure I entertained those kinds of thoughts, but I don't anymore. You know, I just, just right from the heart and uh, people will find their way to it. And that's what happened with Tuesdays with Maury. What a beautiful story. And also, I love yeah, I've heard you say about it that, you know, you realize when you do when you're doing things for the right reasons and when you're doing things for other people, that's when you don't give up. And it, had it just been a yeah. selfish thing, you would have given up. But you you had a real reason to do it. And so you didn't give up. Um, all right. We have uh, we've got about five minutes left here. We have some time for some audience questions. Why don't we throw a couple up on screen? Yeah, we can go a little longer if you need to go. By okay. the way, I, yeah. I've okay. been doing a lot of talking. I feel a little guilty. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Um, okay. Christina, thank you for this question. Do you feel like God is encouraging or guiding you to write your books? Do you feel more connected to him through your writing? Oh, wow. That's a little loftier than I allow myself to think. Um, I It's more like at the end when I write, finish a book, I think more like, did I write anything here that would embarrass, uh, you know, God or the person, the universe that gave me the ability to write it? Uh, I try not to, you know, I, I don't curse in my books, for example. Um, it's not like I don't curse in private life, trust me. Anyone who knows me, I grew up in Jersey, you know, I mean, you know, it's part of your language. But, um, you know, I didn't curse in Tuesdays with Maury and that got that got read by so many people <clears throat> and so many kids that I became very conscious about the fact that kids were reading my books and they were reading them in, in fifth grade. They were writing book reports about Tuesdays with Maury. So I've kind of shied away from that because I think, well, what if kids are reading it now, you know? and I do the same kind of thing, I guess, with God, uh, you know, not so formally, but like, am I writing anything here that's really kind of goes against the idea uh, uh, or would, would embarrass, you know, people who believed in God? And But no, I, I, I can't say that I think that these, other than everything I do comes from a higher power, but I don't think God is directing me to write books specifically. I mean, that would be that would be thinking an awful lot of yourself. And even for someone who wrote a book where he wrote like God in a lifeboat, I, I don't have that high opinion of myself, no. All right, let's have another question from the audience. Well, all right, here we go. Teresa, um, well, I have the new book in hand to read. What is your next idea for a book? Well, normally when people ask me that the day I publish a new book, I always say, uh, I'm so tired. Please don't ask me. That. Like, I can't do another one uh, because I'm not. I mean, it took me six years between Tuesdays with Maury and the five people you meet in heaven and three years for the between books for the most of the rest of them. Now I'm going about every two years and I feel like I'm on a treadmill. Uh, and so usually I don't have an answer for that other than please let me sleep. Uh, and I'll tell you in six months when I wake up. But this time I actually do because uh, I don't know if it'll be the next one or the one after that, but I've had an idea for a long time um, that uh, my publishers would like me to do uh, that concerns, it's, it's, it's something that I, I went to the Holocaust Museum on a visit to Israel and saw uh, uh, something that stayed with me for so long about how the um, when they were rounding up the Jewish people to put them on trains to take them to concentration camps, you know, in order to get that many people to get into a train, uh, they had to get them to trust that the train was 
not going to hurt them, you know, or be dangerous. Otherwise, you have mass people running away from a train station. So they they got other Jewish people who they threatened uh, to lie and to stand on the train tracks and to lie and say, these trains are going to, you can trust it. These trains are going to safe because obviously it was a Nazi official. They wouldn't trust it, but they, 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 they got Jewish people to do it. And I just thought like, Oh my gosh, what you talk about a moral dilemma, you know, you don't want to lie to your own people, but if you don't, they're going to do something to your family. And, um, I've developed an idea that's kind of based in that, in that. So it'll be a historical kind of novel, but, but it's got a twist to it. And um, I've been very anxious to get started on that and, uh, and see where that takes me. Wow. Um, that sounds amazing. You've already got me sort of ready to cry here. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, all right. that'll be somewhat sad, but hopefully something right. I'll feel in it. One more question from the audience and then one more from me and then we'll wrap. Here we go. Audience question. The Strange in a Lifeboat is a novel. What do you like better, writing fiction or nonfiction and why? Uh, like better? It's hard to say if I like it better. I'll tell you the difference um, because I've done a lot of both, you know, because my early career was all nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've written... I think seven novels and and uh, a lot of screenplays and things like that. So here's the difference, how I describe it. So <clears throat> when you're doing nonfiction, you write a story about some guy and you say, man, this would be so much more interesting if um, he had a brother, a twin brother. Can you imagine if he had a twin brother? But can't do that because this is that's not what happened. So you just write what happened. And you imagine what could have been but can't be because you're stuck with reality. When you do fiction... You say, oh, this would be more interesting if this guy had a twin brother. And then you say, hmm, I can give him a twin brother. And so you give him a twin brother. And then a voice in your head says, what about a twin sister? And then the voice says, what about kids? And then a voice <laughs> says, what about if he lived in Mexico? And you don't get those things out of your head. There's just too many ideas. So the curse of nonfiction is that you can't stretch the truth. And the curse of fiction is that you can't stop stretching the truth. And you have to at some point say, well, I'm just going to go with the brother and that's going to be it. Uh, And you have to in each case, you have to make a choice. Uh, In one case, you're more stuck with the choice. In the other case, you have to make it. But um, they both sort of have their maddening moments. Um, I would say that uh, nonfiction, it feels like more work because you don't want to leave anything out and you do a lot of research and I do, a, I do a lot of research with nonfiction books. Incredible. You know, I'm trained as a journalist. You sort of, that's kind of what you do, but, um, fiction, I find that, you know, I, I end up doing a lot of research in my fiction too, maybe more than I need to. If you, if you read the, the magic strings of Frankie Presto, which is one of my favorite books, it's a, it's totally different than anything else I've done. It's 500 plus pages. It's my, you know, opus, uh, but it's about music, which is my love my first love and uh every single fact in that book is accurate except the existence of frankie presto who's this make-believe magical guitar player was like the best guitar player to ever walk the earth but everything else in that book he all the bands he plays with the dates the times the names of the studios where things took place a party at mick jagger's house which actually took place i mean everything was real except him. I didn't have to do that. Nobody would have cared. It's a novel, you know. You, you, I mean, the guy has a magic guitar, you know. <laughs> Come on, but um, 
I just felt like, you know, if it reads better if you do the research. And so my, those two worlds for me, fiction and nonfiction, blend together a lot. All right, we have a bunch of late coming questions and Mitch, we're gonna wrap up and just do a quick one last question. Jenna, just pop something on screen. Do you play music as an escape? Oh yeah, I, music is a, uh, is a huge thing in my life. And uh, I play with a band of writers. Some people may have seen us called the Rock Bottom Remainders. We're terrible, I mean, <laughs> not awful. Uh, we play songs that have no, we can't, and the song can't have more than four chords or we don't play it. Uh, but we have a few ringers uh, in the band, uh, you know, real drummer, real saxophone players. And, you know, I, and I made my living as a musician for a while, so I can play a little bit. And, and Dave Barry can play guitar and Ridley Pearson can play bass. And Amy Tan and Stephen King are in it and many, many, uh, Scott Turow and other writers. And some have more talent than others and some have no talent whatsoever. But we do everything for uh, charity. Uh, and so we feel you know, it's all for literacy groups and everything. We play all over the place. Um, but when I'm not doing that or escaping with that, I, I have three, four, five pianos in my house of different sizes or keyboards, and I play all the time. The kids in Haiti, we have a massive music program, uh, I guess mostly because it matters a lot to me, and, and I play with the kids in Haiti every time I go down. We have a boys' band. Uh, we have a teenage boys' band, a teenage girls' band, and a younger kids. The teenage girls is Destiny 7, the teenage the hermanos brothers which is just spanish for brothers so brothers brothers and uh <laughs> the younger kids band is called the unstoppable tet chage which is uh tet chage is troublemaker in creole so it's like mm. the unstoppable troublemakers and i have such joy just making music with these kids and playing with them and uh uh so it's it's an absolute escape for me every day there's not a day goes by that i don't play music or listen to music it's such a big part of me that I can't play it when I write. I can't even have classical music on when I write because my mind goes right to, oh, diminished fifth, you know, oh, the minor seventh, oh, whatever, you know, I see what they did there. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be writing. This is a waste. So I have to shut it off. So, yeah, music is is a huge, huge part of my life. Wow. All right. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a wonderful interview. Such a treat for me, folks. The book is called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. I've heard, I've seen, I've been watching the comments come through, Mitch, and uh, everybody's saying, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy this. I already have it, so I, I think you're well on your way here. Um, one last question um, for me before we wrap, which is this. You know, you came to Maury 25 years ago in the 90s, however long ago that was, and you were a hard-charging guy having a lot of worldly success. Um, you'd already done so much in your career by that point. Um, but there was a sort of emptiness at the center that, that Maury picked up on right away. And that book is about kind of the way that he told you about ways to live that you'd maybe been missing um, in your life till then. And I guess my last question to you is, if Maury could come back now and see the man you've become today and what you've done since that time, what do you think he'd say? Uh, I, I hope he would say, well done. I hope he would say, uh, I got you to turn around, didn't I? You know, I hope he would say, I got you to cry, didn't I? He was always trying to get me to cry. I don't know, <laughs> it's kind of a personal victory. You know, I said, well, what, what, what's it going to mean to you if I start crying? Are you going to like go, you know, uh, but. Um, you know, 
uh, I'd like to think that he would be proud of me. Um, I hope, you know, because I think that there's a bit of Maury in every single one of my books. Um, and I, I say that openly, you know, uh, uh, some lesson or another <clears throat> that I learned from those Tuesdays sitting alongside him finds its way into every book. And um, certainly that's the case in The Stranger in the Lifeboat. And uh, I think when, you know, I was very sad when Maury died. And I was very sad, obviously, when Chica died. I looked at, like, my experience with Maury and Chica as, like, bookends of, of a life. When I was 37, I was the young person listen, sitting with an older person as he was dying, listening to the wisdom that came out of his mouth. And, and then when I was in, when I was 57, basically, uh, uh, and older, uh, I was sitting next to a little child and listening to, as she died, and listening to the wisdom that came out of her mouth. And um, I was very upset when both of them died. Uh, but there's a, there's a moment in Stranger in the Lifeboat where you can kind of see how I've come to think about all that, where uh, Benji is, is asking the God character, you know, why did you have to take my wife? You know, uh, he's, she died and he's crying over it. And the God character says, well, um, I know that you cry when you lose your loved ones on earth. I see it. I know you cry, but trust me, the ones who have died are not crying. And, uh, you know, if you believe that there's something after this life, whatever it is, then you believe that they're not crying. And as sad as it is for you, maybe it's not sad for them. And maybe since in both cases they were suffering terribly from diseases, um, that the fact that they're not crying counters the tears that you have here on earth. And I've come to uh, believe that with Maury and, and, uh, and, and with Chica. And I hope that one day your question becomes a reality for me. Um, not because they come back here, although that would be really nice, uh, but more likely because I go there. And uh, that would be my bigger wish is that I get to see them again. And I, I hope deep down that I do. What a way to end. Um, Mitch, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's 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 funny. Maury says that he wants to make you cry, but your true destiny in life clearly is to make everybody else cry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I promise you, that's not my intent. <laughs> um, people, please buy this wonderful, wonderful gem of a book. Um, Mitch, it's been such an honor to have you on. Thank you so no much fun. for making time in this busy day. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate talking with you. Great, folks. We'll see you soon. Back on the Thoughtful Bro. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, Herrick's End, is due out May 10th if you want to check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like, a follow, or a review to help other book lovers find us. We'll see you next week for an episode featuring actress and author Haley Mills. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Thank you.